This is Real Estate Rookie Show number 14. The numbers make sense. I just need to do it. It was my first rental. So I was real rental, traditional and out of state. So I said, I need to just... I'm never going to progress. I'm never going to continue to build my portfolio if I don't just jump in and do this deal. Hello, my name is Ashley Kerr, and I am here with my co-host, Felipe Mejia, who is living the life of potty trading. How's it going? Oh my gosh. It's so hard. My son is two and a half, and some days he loves to go on the potty, and some days he's like, no, puppy scared. Puppy, no, no one in. No, I'm like, no, Miko, you can do it. No one in. And I don't think he understands that I'm tired of paying 50, 60 bucks for diapers. <laughs> I have three boys and my youngest, he just he just turned three and he I've always waited for them to kind of be ready and potty train themselves. But so he just potty trained starting in quarantine. So it was a month before he turned three that he actually started potty training. But we are officially out of diapers. Um, he's still wearing them at night, but I mean, that's way better than <laughs> during the day. Heck yeah. Well, we're not talking about potty training in our show today. We actually have <laughs> Robert Leonard. And what I really liked about today's show was some of the bombs that he dropped when it comes to out-of-state investing, finding partners, and great realtors. I mean, three huge topics that's talked about with newbies, right? Yeah. And Robert, as the show goes on, we find out all the stuff he has going on, but he still finds so much time for his real estate investing. I mean, he's hosting two podcasts. He has a full-time job and a family, and he takes the time to call 35 realtors to, to find the one he wants and interview all of them. So he has really great advice too about a partnership. He has an out-of-state deal with a partner and he breaks it down how that relationship began and how it's built. Yeah, that's great. I can't wait to get into it. So let's bring him out, Robert Leonard. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's rent toretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. Rookies, 2024 is the year to start protecting your rental properties with an LLC. But you don't have to do all the paperwork and filing yourself. Corporate Direct is your professional and affordable option for getting your LLC done right. They handle the state filings, draft your operating agreement, and act as your registered agent. They'll even help you comply with the Corporate Transparency Act 
a new federal disclosure law affecting every real estate investor. Corporate Direct is a family business founded by attorney, author, and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton over 35 years ago. Now, his son Ted is a licensed attorney working with him. Together, they've helped thousands of real estate investors form and maintain their LLCs and protect their assets. If you're trying to build a real estate portfolio, do not skip the LLC. Head over to corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets to schedule a free 15-minute consultation with an incorporating specialist. Mention Real Estate Ricky and get a $100 discount on your formation. That's corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets. Hey, Robert. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Super excited to have you here, man. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm super excited to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and give us some, some background on your real estate investing. So when I became a real estate investor, I did it accidentally. I didn't know I was becoming a real estate investor. I didn't really have any intentions of becoming a real estate investor. I was always a stock investor. I started learning stock investing when I was about 14 or 15 years old. I studied it for about seven or eight years. And then when I was graduating college, my parents told me when I went into college that when I graduated, started earning a salary, I would have to pay them rent. And it really wasn't a big deal. A lot of people have to do that. But I knew that I did not want to pay rent. For me, I just I wanted to own something. And so I worked nearly full-time all throughout college and I purchased a property before I walked at my college graduation my senior year. And so I ended up living there and basically what happened was I had two bedrooms and I never opened the bedroom door for the second bedroom for months and I was like, "Well, I should probably do something with this." And so I ended up renting out that bedroom and it covered about $700, $750 of about $1,100 mortgage. I said, well, this, this isn't so bad. And I hadn't found bigger pockets or anything like that. I don't know if house hacking was even a thing yet or as a, as a name. And so fast forward a few months, I found out, well, hey, this is a real estate investing strategy. I, I guess I could actually do this. Being a stock investor, I never thought that I could be a real estate investor. I always thought it was just for the wealthy and for the rich. And so that's kind of how I fell into to real estate investing. That's awesome. I love the accidental uh, house hacker and Felipe, he you know calls himself the king of house hacking, right, Felipe? But actually right. it's your mom that taught it to you. So you can't take all the credit. <laughs> right. A lot of people don't know that, that I actually picked it up from my mom and then that's how, that's how I got started. I just kind of 10X'd her. But Robert, out of curiosity, did, were you never curious about that door or what, what that door was for or what, what was in there? I mean, did you just say, yeah, it's just empty space. I'm going to use it for storage? I didn't even use it for storage. I didn't use it for anything. I, I mean, I went in there, of course, during inspections, things like that, and when I moved in. But I mean, it was just a spare room that I didn't need. And I just, I had a plenty of space in the house. So I, never, I just never went in it ever. I just never, so, just kind of always walked past it. So what gave you the idea to rent it out though? I'm sure, I'm sure you weren't just like, hey, I'm going to rent stuff. Did somebody ask you? Did you see it on YouTube? I mean, what gave you the idea that, hey, maybe I can make some money off of this room? I just, I don't, I'm not sure exactly. It just kind of popped in my head, really. I was just like, well, you had the epiphany. <laughs> yeah, I just had the epiphany. I think it was like innate. And, you know, it's kind of always been innate in me to be an investor and make business, you know, do businesses, side hustles, things like that. So I said, well, I like to have toys, uh, things with motors, and I want to buy some more. So how can I get some more money coming in? And that was just one of the ways. That's great. I love that. So what does your portfolio kind of look like now? So what was the next step for you after you did that initial house hack? So I've done more deals since then, but I've been, I've sold off some of my portfolio. So I've done about six deals, but I own three units right now. So from the house hack, I lived there. So it was kind of strategic, but it kind of wasn't. So when I went to buy the property, they were putting a special assessment on the property because it was a condo. So there's a homeowners association. And so that was holding up the purchase. And so I knew something was going on, but they didn't really release all the details. And I said, well, I'll, I'll buy it anyway and just kind of see what happens. And so I owned it for about nine months. And basically what the special assessment ended up being was the homeowners association did a $7 million renovation to the property. Because they've never done any project like this, they had a big savings in their HOA fund. And so they used almost all of the money from that to fund the renovations. So us as the owners only had to put about $10,000 of our own money into the renovations for about sixty dollars or $70,000 worth of work. So we got all new siding, all new doors, windows, roof, parking lot got redone, pool, everything. So the community looked amazing after. And this was just after I bought it. So I eventually Great planned timing on... timing there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it kind of worked out. And that's why I said I kind of speculated a little bit because I knew something was coming, but I didn't know what. And yeah. so... 
basically, I was going to turn it into a rental. That was my plan. Live there for a year, year and a half, two years, and then move out, turn it into a rental. But because of that, the value skyrocketed and I was able to sell it and make a decent chunk of money. And so I put that into a live and flip. I had never done anything you know, like a flip or anything like that. I'm not very handy myself. So I didn't want to go super into one that was super detailed, that was a full gut or anything like that. So I got one that needed some paint, some minor renovations on the inside. And then a lot of it was on the outside, the exterior landscaping. So we did a lot of that, put up fencing, just made the whole space a lot, leveled the space, got brought in equipment to flatten the hill in the backyard, do all kinds of stuff to just make it a lot more functional. And so we've done that. I live there now. I'm about to sell it about after about a year and a half of living here and make about 50,000 or so on that. And I'm looking to buy another house hack. I just looked at a three unit to house hack yesterday. And so I'm looking to do a three or four unit for a house hack. And then in there, uh, I purchased a duplex and also a long distance single family rental. That is awesome. And I love how you said that you're not handy, but yet you're still doing a live and flip. You don't have to do anything and you can still have a live and flip. You can hire everything out or find the property where there's the stuff that you can do, like the landscaping, the exterior work, the, you know, cosmetic updates. And I, I can at least paint. <laughs> so yeah, that's awesome. I can't build walls or do anything that takes like a lot of skill, but I figured, right. well, I can learn, you know, I could learn yeah. landscaping or I could paint or hang a door or do, you know, do a few things here and there. So Robert, what did... Kind of give us a rundown of what your definition of a live and flip is. And then what did you end up doing to that property? And you're saying you're living in there now, right? Yeah. I'm, so I'm there now. Uh, we're supposed to be putting it on the market or I'm supposed to be putting it on the market in the next couple of days or weeks. Uh, so hopefully we'll be be selling that soon. But so basically a live-in flip is you move into a property that's not 100% live-in, like rent ready or live ready. So you there's some things that need to be done to the property. Sometimes it could be more extreme and you can get a construction loan, kind of go through that way, or you can get something that you can still get traditional financing, which is what I did, but it still needed, you know, cabinets were outdated, paint was outdated, needed some paint, maybe windows, like I said, landscaping, things like that. So what I did was I came in, everything was original, all the trim on the walls, all the paint, everything was original. So I painted the trim black and then I painted all the walls. Uh, did some small things to the bathrooms, updated the kitchen a little bit, and then a lot of it was on the outside. So where I purchased the property, people don't have a ton of land. And that's kind of one of the downsides to these properties is back in the 80s, they built a community of probably 100 different duplexes and they kind of just threw them up all at once and made them all cookie cutter. And so not everybody got a ton of land. And that was the problem with this property is it didn't have a lot of usable space in the yard. And it's a super family-oriented area. So I figured if I can get some more space out of this yard, it'll probably add some value. So I brought in an excavator, excavated the backyard. It was a very steep hill. We were able to flatten it out, added a ton of space in the backyard, replanted grass. It was all just dirt. And then we threw up a fence, added a very nice, has a huge deck, 20 by 10 deck. So it's a large deck, added some fencing and a bench around that. So the whole outside looks a lot better. It's a lot more oriented towards families. And I think that's going to help when I go to sell because now someone with a family is going to be willing to purchase this property, whereas before it was more of a bachelor. So on this live and flip, what is your optimal hold period? Do you have a set time frame for a live and flip that you want to you know, shoot for? It really depends. I mean, at least a year because for the financing. So you're going to want to keep it for a year. You could, I could turn this into a rental, but I'd rather take that money and put it into a three or four unit. So it kind of depends on what your goal is. If it's going to be a rental, then of course you're going to just hold it forever. But if you're going to just flip it at least a year, but if you could do a seasoning period. So exactly. some banks uh, require that you, when you purchase a property, you hold it for a year before you go and refinance. And there's some banks that don't make you wait at all. Some six months, some a year, there's probably banks that do longer than a year too. Um, just depends what bank you go to, but that's called the the seasoning period um, where you can wait to refinance. There's also some people wait to flip a house, a live-in flip so that they get the tax benefit too. Is that two years or one year that you hold a primary residence and you don't pay income tax on you, the profit? You live in it for two years of the last years. five years. Okay. okay. So yeah, you'd have to hold it for five years and then live it as a primary residence. So that would work if you fix it up, you live in it for two years and then you rent it out for the other three, then sell it. You want to pay in income tax on it. You actually Correct. just have to live there. You don't have to own it for five years. You just have to live there oh, for okay. two years of the last five years. Oh, okay. I see. Okay, cool. 
Learning yeah. something new every day. <laughs> there you go, Ashley. Yeah. Start taking notes. I just always wanted to do house hacking or a live and flip, but we built our own house, like our, hopefully our forever home a couple of years ago. And I just, I'm always interested in the wealth creation from jumping from house to house like that. Hey, Robert, was there anything that scared you about having a live and flip? I, I know that a lot of people all ask me a question and say, hey, that's a concept that I would like to do. But I'm not handy. I'm not going to be able to fix anything. So I'd rather just buy a, a, a house that's a move-in ready. And usually what I tell them is, well, when you do a live and flip, you know, you're going to be able to add value. You're going to, you know, you're buying it at a lower cost because it is not rent ready or live ready. Like you said, it is livable, obviously, but there is upgrades that need to be done. Was there anything that scared you about moving into a property that wasn't quote unquote rent ready? Not really, because I was very conservative with this. You know, This is a property that a lot of people would move into and be completely fine with it the way it was. And so I knew my downside was was pretty small. The part that kind of made me a little nervous was just... I was going from the condo that I lived in before was very nice. Everything was modern. It, it was... I mean, it was perfect inside. You know, It had just been remodeled, everything like that. So going to something that was a little less you know, up to date, if you will, was a little nerve wracking. But in terms of doing the live and flip itself, no, I really wasn't because like I said, nothing was major. And worst case, if I ended up not being able to do it myself, those things didn't have to get done for me to be able to sell the property in the future. And so I knew I was limiting my upside in terms of profit potential because you're not going to add a ton of value by throwing paint in the wall. But I figured, hey, it's a, it's a conservative, low risk way for me to, to give this strategy a try. What advice would you give our listeners that are thinking about that's going to be their first real estate move, a live-in flip. I mean, that's that sounds scary to those who, you know, it's their first time doing it. So what advice would you give to somebody since you've, you're going through the process now and it sounds like you're getting towards the end? And I'd love to hear what you think the numbers are going to be, you know, after you close. But before we get to that, what is some advice that you would give to our listeners, you know, regarding a live-in flip uh, if they're like on the fence about it? I think the biggest thing is to manage your expectations. If you go in and you buy something conservative, kind of like I did, you're not going to expect to make hundred thousand dollars in value add in you know in a year or two years you need to be able to to maintain those expectations because if you it's really an expectations game because if you come into this and you expect to make a hundred thousand dollars and then in two years you go to sell and you only make 50 you're not you're gonna be like oh this real estate thing isn't really for me you know it's not great or but you still made 50 grand <laughs> right right but that's why some people would be upset by that they're it. like hey I only made half of what I thought I was gonna make so I think that's the first thing really manage those expectations the other thing is if it's your first one and you're not handy like me consider if a bank will lend on it with traditional financing, it's probably pretty safe because they're pretty strict with those types of loans. So that might be a good one for you to start with if you don't, if you aren't super handy because you can live there. It's livable, habitable as is. If you're going to go, if you're a little more handy and you want to go that route, you could go the sh- construction route, but just be, I just caution you to be careful with doing that. Not that it can't work. A lot of people do very well, but make sure I'd probably recommend those for the more handy people. Okay, cool. So do you have a full-time job and did you do all of you know this live and flip while working full-time? I do. Yep. So I do work full-time right now. I'm a corporate finance manager. Over the last two or three years, I've kind of just been climbing the corporate finance ladder. And right now I'm a corporate finance manager. Sounds busy. So how does that affect your... <laughs> yeah, it does sound busy. How does that affect your live and flip? And sorry, I keep going back to that because I know our listeners are going to want to know, you know, if you have a full-time job, how do you have time to you know work on the house? Nights and weekends. So that's kind of the other piece of it, really, that you gotta you gotta think of. Like, are you willing to do that? You know, it's it's one of you know, a lot of people get into real estate to be passive and it's not necessarily the most passive thing, but it's you have a Saturday afternoon, you don't really have much going on, you're just kinda hanging around the house. Oh, I'll paint this bedroom or got the weekend free, I don't have any plans, I'll go out and do some landscaping, I'll throw some sod down or I'll bring a machine in to do some some work. So you just kind of Find the time, do it on nights and weekends. And it doesn't have to be... The good thing about the a live and flip versus a regular flip is a regular flip, you're on a super tight schedule. You got to get it done so you can make a profit. The longer you hold that, the less money you're going to make. And it's not necessarily the exact same thing with a live and flip. It's your primary residence. So you're living there anyway. You can kind of take your time with it. So with that $50,000 profit, so that's not even including the mortgage that was paid down for you to live there for the year and three months, correct? So correct. technically, I mean, you lived for free in that house. You got paid back, Correct. <laughs> right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So let's go on to a, a deal analysis. Was that the deal you were going to use or do you have a different one you wanted to really dive into? Let's dive into my long distance rental. I like talking about okay. that one. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. Okay. So tell us how you found the deal. Let's start there. 
So this was my third deal after I did the living. Well, I'm in the living flip still, but after that had kind of settled a little bit, I said, I want to get into some more traditional rentals because that's what I wanted to do with the condo. And it just ended up, like I said, turning into more of like a flip. And so I said, I want to do a rental, a traditional rental. But in my area, an average duplex is almost 400000 And so I'm in the greater Boston area. So it's a pretty expensive market. It's not like Los Angeles or New York necessarily, but it's, it's pretty expensive. And so I didn't... Ha- I mean, I was only 22, 23 years old at the time. I didn't have that kind of money to invest. I didn't know anybody that had that money to invest. So I said, well, what are my other options? And so I read David Green's book, Long Distance Investing. And I said, well, I, I can do this. And so I decided to buy a long distance rental. And it's kind of funny because I always told myself I'd never buy a single family. I always was super against it. I never wanted to do it. And then I got, I got kind of stuck in analysis by, paralysis by analysis and I wouldn't buy a deal. And then I said, you know what? This single family came across my plate. I said, this is a great deal. I need to just buy it. And so I did. Robert, I think it's really important for people to kind of uh, take in what you just said, where you got into analysis process because you were looking for a very specific type of property, property, and, or probably, and you were like, no, I'm not going to do single family homes. But I think once people analyze their goal, their personal goal, and they stop measuring rentals based on everyone else's analysis, and you finally just do it, like what is going to benefit Robert right now? And this deal makes sense. And just because it doesn't fit the quote unquote mold that you think it should, right? If the numbers make sense, it's just four walls and a roof anyways. So like you said, it's a single family home. It might have not been what you were actually looking for, but it probably did meet your personal goal. And probably and that's why you were able to pull the trigger because you stopped looking at it as, well, it's not a multifamily, so I'm probably going to pass on it. Or it's not a mobile home, so I'm not going to buy it. But no, it's like, okay, it's a single family home and the numbers make sense. And if the numbers make sense, that is what's most important. You're able to let go of your emotions of purchasing that property. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's exactly right. It was a completely emotional thing. I had no rationale as to why I only wanted to do multifamily. I just kind of always thought that single family was more risky because you only have one tenant. So I kind of hedged that and I just said, like you said, the numbers make sense. I just need to do it. It was my first rental. So I was real rental, traditional and out of state. So I said, I need to just, I'm never going to progress. I'm never going to continue to build my portfolio if I don't just jump in and do this deal. Last or a couple of weeks ago, we had Jay Scott on the episode and his first deal ever was his wife. They looked at like a hundred houses and his wife said, that's it. The next house they look at, we're buying and they bought it. And that's how they got over their analysis paralysis. Yeah. I actually had Funny. Jay Scott on on my show not too long ago oh, as yeah. well. And he get, he said the same story. I think they ended yeah. up buying four. I think they bought one and then they ended up buying four right away. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like we tell everyone, you're not going to become a millionaire on the first one. It's the lessons you learn, right? And Robert, you went out of state with your first single family that you were completely against. And it's probably crushing it. I'm excited to hear the rest of the story, but I just want to let people know that it's about taking action, right? And and your fear might have been, well, it's out of state and it's a single family home that I swore I wasn't going to do. But maybe in that market, that single family makes sense, right? So it's just different markets, different areas, and you need to run your analysis just based on the numbers, take the emotion out of it. So what happened next, Robert? Tell us. So basically what happened was I said, all right, I'm going to go out of state. I could have, you know, I can't really afford here. And it's not really an afford thing. It's just, I don't want to buy a duplex for 400,000 up here. The numbers aren't as great as I can get in other parts of, of the country. I kind of had a lot of things that kind of all came together as I knew I wasn't taking enough action. And then I, le- I learned a quote and then David Green has said it before and a couple other people as well. So I'm not sure who originally coined it, but they basically said, live where you want to live, invest where the numbers make sense. And that really hit me. And I said, I'm not taking action. And I just heard this quote, I need to, to go after these two things. And so I analyzed demographic data for about 7,000 cities across the US. Uh, my background in finance, I do a lot in Excel. So I was able to analyze a lot of data that way. And basically, I narrowed it down to about 20, 25 cities that I enjoyed or that met the demographic data points that I need, which made me think that it would potentially be a good investment. And so then I started calling around to see if there were investor-friendly agents in those areas. And then once I determined which ones had investor-friendly agents, I then looked at some of the inventory on the MLS. Not necessarily because I was going to have to buy from the MLS, but I think it's a good indicator as to if there's any inventory there. If there's nothing on the MLS, you're probably going to have a hard time finding something even off-market. So that's kind of what I did. I narrowed it down to about 10 cities. And then I just started spreading offers out pretty much as much as I could on a bunch of properties. And then once one hit, I just I went with it. Man, that's that's a great story. 
because that's you taking action. And and I want to dig into that a little bit more. First question, and then I got a question after that. But the first question is, where did you get the uh, data that you needed for that? Was that just like on Realtor? Or I mean, where did you get that data? So that's from a website called city-data.org. City-data.org. We'll make sure to put that in the notes. And then my second question is, so everyone talks about real estate friendly and right. Like, are you a realtor that's, that's friendly to real estate investors, right? Or, or is your lender real estate friendly? So what does that actually mean for you, Robert? Because I know that different people have different definitions of real estate friendly, right? So what does that mean for you when you're looking out of state? How does somebody find a friendly realtor to real estate investors? Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make because I think there's a couple different types of investor-friendly agents. If you ask any agent, they're gonna and you say, "Are you investor-friendly?" They're gonna say, "Of course, yes. I they're am. gonna say yes." Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Everybody will say yes. So that's not enough. You need to dive a little deeper. And so I think you have local investor-friendly agents, and then you have ones that are gonna help you when you're long distance. And that's a I think they're totally different types of agents because one needs to be more hands-on if that's how you're gonna build your team, and the other one just needs to be more like a a regular agent, but needs to understand some of the investor terminology. So for me, I knew I was going to be long distance. So I needed to find a really good agent that understood the area so that they could tell me where I needed to invest. So I was able to use demographic data to find the city. Overall, I I was very comfortable that this was a good city, met every characteristic that I wanted in a city. But every the best city in the world is going to have bad neighborhoods, bad areas, things like that. So I needed to rely on this person to help me navigate the, the good neighborhoods. And I, of course, called for multiple opinions, but the agent needs to be able to tell me that. And so what I look for was somebody who was an investor themselves, someone who understood the terminology, who could have a conversation with me and understood the types of things that I was talking about. You can, It's kind of hard to explain, but you get a feel as to how that conversation is going as to whether or not they understand what you're talking about. And then the other thing was, are they willing to go above and beyond what's needed? So I'm long distance. I'm going to need somebody to go in, check out the property for me, I need somebody to go there for the inspections. I need somebody to do the move in, move out checklist for me. I need them to do if the tenant locks out their keys, they need to be able to provide me with a locksmith or just have a big network. So I look for someone that has a huge network of people, real estate professionals that I can I can connect with. And so that those are the really the big things that I look for in an agent. So to recap, you make sure that they have real estate themselves, right? So are they an investor? Second, do they know the terminology, right? ROI, just CapEx. Like, do they know the terminology that you're talking about or do you have to sit there and define it for them, right? And then the third one is their network. Do they have a large network of individuals in the city that it's gonna positively affect Robert's goal with that property that he's potentially gonna buy? Great points, I love it. They also need to be able and willing to go a little bit above and beyond. So for the inspection, I needed someone that was gonna be my boots on the ground there. So he was literally on FaceTime with me walking through the inspection. And I think this is one of my favorite points to make when I talk about long distance because people look at me, especially my family, who's not really an investor, and even my friends, they say, you're investing long distance. Like, what are you doing? You're crazy. And I said, but guys, I don't know anything about this kind of stuff. So if it's my next door neighbor's house that I buy, if I go in there and I'm looking at something, I don't really know what I'm looking at anyway. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire a professional that's going to come in, give me their opinion and tell me what's right or wrong with this property. And so basically, when I go there, as long as I'm on FaceTime walking around with the inspector and my agent, it's essentially the same thing. So that's, that's just an example of one of those things that my agent needs to be able to do for me is during the appraisal, during the inspections, things like that, walk around with your phone on FaceTime so I can actually see what's going on. Show me the property. That's a really good point because a lot of people talk about out-of-state investing. How do I find someone I can trust? You know, the realtor. Well, do you trust yourself to to make those judgment calls on things that a professional can do for you? So I really like that a lot because even for me, one of my goals this year is out-of-state investing. And it's like finding a team I can trust. And But also, like if I go into a property, I definitely know a lot more now than I did years ago, but I'm not going to know anything about that market. And I need to, the realtor is going to know better than me anyway. So I don't need to, to go there and to study. Does the, the family, do the families that want to rent there, do they want, you know, a backyard or would they rather an extra bedroom, stuff like that. All of those are things that I'm going to trust a real estate professional in that area to know. And plus that saves me a ton of time and research, just, you know, going off of what they know already, because they've been doing this for so long and they're the professional. It's kind of like 
you know, a property manager. They're the professional. They know the rules, the laws, the regulations, and that's something easy to outsource for them to take care of. Yeah. It's almost like having a property manager as an agent as well. And the reason I also like them being an investor is like you said, they understand all of these different things. And so for me, my agent actually said, if you guys don't buy this property, I'm going to buy it. Yeah. So that gave me a lot of confidence to to move forward. And of course, I didn't. He didn't tell us that until a little afterwards, and I didn't make my buying decision based on that. Right. But it, it's just one of those things that makes you feel feel good about it. And they need to be willing to go do those types of things. Take the videos for you is a really big one when you're investing long distance. And that he didn't steal the deal from you either. <laughs> exactly. Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours, even the same day, with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. So let's get into the numbers there, Robert. What did you purchase it for? What did you have to do to it? What's it renting for? Did you refinance? Do you still have it? I mean, give us, give us the whole picture with the numbers in it. Yeah. So the acquisition is actually a little bit of a funny story because we were going to buy it cash. It was... So like I said, I'm in greater Boston. Duplexes are about 400. So when we went to Texas, this is a beautiful... That's where it is in Texas. It's a beautiful three bed, two bath, one car garage, beautiful fenced in yard, great neighborhood, great schools. So it's great property, but it was only $65,000 or they were asking 70, I think. And you know, we were shocked or I was shocked. And so... I was going to buy it cash. And I had a business partner on this deal, but we were going to buy it cash together. And then they started wanting a proof of funds and things like that. And it was just, it's kind of a pain to get a proof of funds from a bank. And so we said, let's just kind of forgo this deal. If you're going to require for, uh, proof of funds, we're going to, we're just not, we're not interested. And so we pulled our let's offer. Just, let's explain that real quick. So a proof of funds is a letter from your bank stating that you have this amount of money in your bank account. And some banks will actually put a hold on that money for up to two weeks and sometimes even 30 days giving you that letter. Yeah, it's a month in my city. If you want to get a proof of funds in your savings, 
it's like 30 days frozen and it's like, whoa, like what if this deal doesn't even go through? So I don't like that either, actually. And, yeah. and it sometimes takes time for them to get you the letter. Like you can't just take a screenshot of your bank account online. They, right. sometimes it takes a couple of days and if, you know, real estate can be fast moving. And if you just don't have time for that, then. And that's where the banking relationships come key. Like I have a banker that will give me a proof of funds letter that day and they won't freeze my accounts. So, you know, working with smaller banks, stuff like that can be an advantage, but yeah, that 30 day to freeze your funds is <laughs> not the best. <laughs> yeah. We just didn't want to deal with it. And we had two yeah. separate banks for me and my business partner. And we were just like, it's not, not worth it for us. We had, I think we had like 13 other offers out at the, at the same time. So we're like, we'll, we'll probably get one of those or we'll have, we'll buy another property. It's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. So we pulled our offer and we were full asking price uh, with cash. And then we pulled that offer. And then a couple of days later, they came back to us and said, uh, we have a bidding war. We're asking for best and final. And we said, you know what? We have a pre-approval. Let's just submit it with the pre-approval. And so we'll use a financing offer. And we offered, I believe it was five or $10,000 under what asking was. I think So I think we ended up offering 65000 And we actually got it. Apparently, they had seven offers, they said. And we, we got the property at sixty five. And so I, I don't know how or why we got it. We didn't even ask offer full asking. Uh, but I wonder, I still to this day think it might have been because they knew we went in with cash. And I think in the back of their mind, they knew we would close. And I think that might have helped. I, I don't know for sure. But yeah. I think that's definitely an advantage. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. That, I would have remembered the cash offer too. Because if somebody would have offered even a thousand, two thousand bucks more than you did, but it was bank financing, that's risky to me. I'd rather have, I'd rather lose a thousand bucks and make sure you know that Robert's going to close with cash. So yeah, well, we 100%. ended up coming in with a financing offer. That's what we did. Nice. So we ended up using the financing, but I think they knew that we originally offered cash. So anyway, we, we ended up getting it for 5000 less than asking in a contested bid. So we went through the process. My agent, like I said, helped us through the process of the inspection, the appraisal, all of that. So you never saw the property? Never. Yeah. I like to say, if I have to go to the properties, then something very, very bad happened because I hope yeah. I never have to go there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, never seen it in person. During the initial showing, he took great videos, showed us everything. He's an investor, so he knew what to look for and sent me really quality videos of what, what I need to look at. So went through the inspection, got all of that done, and then closed on the property. We were able to get a tenant in in about two weeks. It was the strong rental market and it rented for 900 Nice. And this was pretty much turnkey. You didn't have to do anything. Yeah. No, right. So straight off the MLS, turnkey yeah. and nothing, no renovations needed to be done. Uh, we've had some small repairs that we've had to do here and there, but nothing, nothing major by any means. And so rented for 900. Our total mortgage with taxes, insurance, I think is like 350 or 400. And, you know, you have your reserves that you have to take into consideration, repairs, maintenance, mm -hmm. CapEx, things like that, that we put money aside for, but it's cash flowing about $300 a month. That's great. When did you purchase the property? How long ago was this? One year ago this yeah. month. Oh, well, congratulations. Is this a cash flow pay for you? Is it an equity play? Is this reinvest the money and buy more in that city? What's the play with the property? Uh, just a rental for cash flow. It's one of those things with the Midwest is you, you don't often get a lot of appreciation. Usually it's more of a cash flow type play than you do get on the coast. And so I'm not expecting a ton of appreciation. It's a strong market just outside of Dallas, about an hour and a half outside of Dallas. So we might have some appreciation there, but I'm more focused on the cash flow. I want to ask you about the financing for an out-of-state investment. So did you have to go with a, a bank in Texas and did the realtor kind of hook you up with that? Or how did you go about getting that mortgage on the property out-of-state? So I don't think we had to. I think I could have used you know, an, a lender that's nationwide if I wanted mm -hmm. to, but my agent had a really good relationship with someone that he uses for his own personal investments. So he gave me the connection. I reached out to them and... Just everything done online, right? Yep. Yeah. Everything yeah. was done online. And then when we did the closing, the closing company, the title company just FedExed me next day, the mm -hmm. envelope. So the night before closing, they send you everything. And then they tell you not to sign it until the day of closing. You do that on the day of closing. You go to your local bank and get it notarized or wherever you want to get it notarized. And then you next day air it back to them and they get it back the next day. And then you get the keys. I did uh, bank financing once on one of my rentals for an online bank. So they don't actually have a branch and they do mortgages and stuff. And they actually sent a notary to my house for me to sign all the documents. But it was definitely a very different experience. But I really like doing everything online and through email. So it, it did work good. It was Bank of Axos that I used. 
that. Yeah. Technology has made all of this so much easier. And, and that's kind of what I always tell people is if you tried to do long distance investing 10 years ago, even it's a lot different than it is today. I think a lot of the stigma around it is gone now because of technology. I had a business partner of mine who, when we were closing on his property, speaking of technology, we were closing on his property. He was actually on, and this is so funny. He was on his honeymoon when we were supposed to close and he was in Hawaii. So he had to sneak out, run downstairs to the hotel lobby, sign all the documents because the bank, they sent uh, uh, someone, the same thing like Ashley, a, a notary down to the lobby. He ran down, he signed all the documents and ran back upstairs. And he was like, dude, you're going to get me in trouble. We haven't even been married two weeks. So like you said, technology has been great. I mean, it's, it's definitely made things a lot easier. Yeah. So it's funny you say that, Felipe, because my business partner was actually on his honeymoon as we were going through the closing <laughs> process. I swear, yeah. he really was. Thankfully, he made it back in time. He came back a couple of days before the actual closing so he could sign the physical documents with us. But like, if we had any questions or anything like that, I was calling him. He's in Aruba and I'm trying to get in touch with him. And Dude, just, stop calling me. Yeah, right. I'm Facebook messaging his fiance. We're going back and forth. And yeah, so it's, it's funny. The same thing happened for me. But to answer your question, yeah. So we, we again, we, this was really a learning experience. Felipe said it earlier, is your first property is not going to make you rich. And I knew that. And that's why I was comfortable doing this deal. The mortgage all in, like I said, is about $350, $400 a month. I said, absolute worst case scenario, I can cover this mortgage myself if I have to. So that's why I was so confident to go long distance. And I kind of took the same approach with property management. I had done some, like I said, house hack. So I'd done a little bit of tenant management, but not a ton. But I'd read a ton of books. I'd read a lot of Brandon Turner's books, listened to all the Bigger Pockets podcasts, things like that. So I felt pretty confident. And I had my agent who was willing to help us with property management if we needed him. But I said, can you do just X, Y, and Z? Can you just do the tenant move-in for us? We'll handle everything else. That's all I need you to do. He said, yeah, absolutely. And he said, if things go bad, can we call you and then have you take over the property management if we need to? And he said, yeah, of course. And so that's what we did. We said, let's test it for a few months, three, six months and see how it goes. If it's too much, we'll hire a property manager. We built that into our numbers originally, but things went really well. It's actually really easy for us to do. We have good systems in place. And with technology, it's, it's really not too difficult. So we've continued to just self-manage it from 2,000 miles away. Are you using any specific software at all? Yeah, we use Cozy mostly yeah. for the tenant management. And then we also use Stessa mostly just because I'm an accounting guy background. I love to keep the financials in Stessa, but yeah. Cozy is really the one that helps us a lot. Interesting. Hey, Robert, real quick, because I know other people are going to want to know, regarding the bank financing, did you use a bank in the same city as, a, as the house or did you use a bank from where you live? I used a bank local to the property. Local to the property. So you reached out to a bank local to the property, said, hey, I'm an out-of-state investor. Here's funds. Here's all the information. I'd like to purchase this property. And you were able to move forward with that, right? Exactly. My agent uses him, that the loan officer and the, that bank for all of his investment properties in that town. So we went with that. And I was hoping you were going to say that because I wanted our listeners to know how important it is to have a real estate agent that has rental properties because they're going to know what banks work well with out-of-state investors, in-state investors, whatever the case may be. But a good realtor is going to be like your lifeline to ever, to the best mortgage company, to the best home inspector, to the best, you know, all that stuff. And I can't remember what episode it was, but Rose Buckley, we had recently, she's a home inspector and she talks about her relationship with realtors as well, right? So it's very important to build that relationship with the realtor and make sure you get the right one because they're going to be your lifeline to that property if it is out of state. So thanks. I'm so glad you said that. And then my next question that I was going to ask was, for, for that property, when you're investing out of state, do you ever feel the need to want to go see it by any means? Or like you said earlier, you're like, nope, if I got to go see it, that's it. Something bad happened. So I kind of want to go see the city just because I have rental there and I want to buy more there. But if I'm ever... My corporate job actually has an office that's only about an hour away from where I purchased the property. I bought the property before I worked at this company. So when I made the transfer to that company, it just kind of happened that they had an office there. Uh, it wasn't by on purpose or anything. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I really in general think that if I have to go there, there's an issue. If someday I'm in the area, I'll swing by. But yeah, I hope to never have to go there. I want to ask, because Felipe and I get this question a lot. How did you find your partner and how did you structure your partnership? So he and I met at the gym through mutual friends. So I had a workout partner and it was his brother. And so him and I met and we're younger guys. I'm 25 now. He's 27 or 28. And at the time I was like 22, he was 25. So there's just not a lot of people our age that are into a lot of the same things that we have that kind of have the same mindset that we have. You know, we're both very much 
go-getters and we're both into investing in real estate. So we just kind of hit it off really, really well. We were friends for three or four years, maybe five years. And then that's when we kind of reconnected and said, Hey, do you want to do this real estate thing together? And he actually originally came to me and said, Hey, I know you invest a lot in the stock market, which I do. He said, Would you, I'm going to give you a chunk of money. Would you be willing to invest it for me? And I said, no. I said, I was, I'm not willing to do that. Uh, I don't like where the market is right now. I don't think there's enough good opportunities for me to put your money to work and, and be not reliable, but you know, have my name on, on your money. I'm not, I'm not comfortable with that at this point in the market. If it was a different market, sure. But right now I'm not. And so he said that that meant a lot to him because it showed like who I was as a person and that I wasn't willing to just take the money and make money off of him for no reason if it wasn't a great opportunity. And so from there, we just continued to talk and talk and talk. Our relationship grew and we were very well aligned on what we want for our portfolio and also long-term. So we just decided to become partners together and we basically just split everything 50-50. So 50 money in and 50 of the... How do you kind of separate the responsibilities? So if you're self-managing... Is one of you doing the bookkeeping and another one responding to tenants? How does that work? Yeah. So I do the bookkeeping. I'm an accounting finance guy. So it just kind of falls in my lap and, and I actually enjoy it, honestly. And for the tenant stuff, we just split it really. If mm-hmm. Sometimes if, if I'm available, I'll take it if, if he, and he's not. If he's available and I'm not, he'll take it. We don't really get a ton of requests, really. I mean, the property's in good shape. The tenants, we, got, we make sure we get really good tenants in there. So it's really not been a huge, huge burden on us. Yeah, Robert, how do you find good tenants out of state? You said we find really good tenants. You're out of state. So how do you make sure you get the creme de la creme of tenants? We look for, you know, we look at people's credit history, background checks, employment history. And that's really the the biggest things that we're looking for and rental history, how they've how they done in the past. We call references, things like that. So really, we're just looking for the best of all of those options. And then we've set the criteria so that if people meet these criteria, they're going to be good likely going to be good tenants. I mean, you never know what anybody's going to be like until they're actually a tenant for you. But by, by having strong criteria that we've read and, and gathered from Brandon Turner's books, we were able to get good tenants in there. Yeah. On Brandon's podcast today, so the Bigger Pockets Real Estate podcast with Brandon and David, I'm talking about partnerships. They actually had two partners on. And when you were just talking, I was thinking about this. I think his name was Sam Grooms. He was on there and he said that him and his partner work so well together because they have different strengths. So they play off each other, but their mindset on their real estate goals and investments are the same. And that's why they work so well together. Their short-term, long-term goals are the same, but they each, like you're, you said, you're the finance guy and you do the bookkeeping side of things and that's your strength. And they talked about the different strengths they have. So I think that anyone looking for a partner, go out and look for someone that maybe is better at something that you're not. And you guys can kind of use your strengths to each other's advantage and then, but make sure your goals are the same. So plan it out. Well, you know, what do you want to see six months from now, a year from now? You know, what do you want out of investing in real estate? Do you want time freedom? Because your your partner might want to be hands-on for everything to save more money. So it's definitely, I like to call them alignment meetings where you sit down with your partner and make sure that your goals still align, you know, whether you do it quarterly every year. But it seems like you and your partner have a lot of those systems in place. And as far as right now, your goals are very aligned moving forward. That's exactly. We learned that exact same thing from Brandon and David and the Bigger Pockets community, the mm-hmm. podcast and the books. But my business partner and I are that exact same way. I'm more introverted than he is. He's a sales guy. He's a pharmaceutical sales rep. So he's that's what he does all day. He you know he talks to people and he's very outgoing. And it's just kind of how he's. So he's a been. high DNI on the disc profile. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I'm the opposite. You know, I like having yeah. conversations. I you know I host a podcast. I talk to you guys. So I don't mind it. But I'm just a lot more introverted. And so we see us scaling as him being kind of our money raiser. He's going to go out there and meet people that want to raise and help us raise capital. And then I'll be the guy that's... I'm more analytical. I know how to do all the the deal analysis, Mm -hmm. find the deals, acquire the deals. And so that's kind of really how we work so well together. I love that. That's how me and my business partners are as well. I'm definitely, you know, the more the sales guy, the more talking to the contractors. I'm out there on boots on the ground. Like I love that stuff. But if you put me in front of an Excel sheet, man, I'm like, why is there letters on this thing? Like what is going on? Right. So I'm totally not that guy, but I have great business partners that are. So and I that's agree why 100%. you have an amazing wife too that 
does that. Let me tell you, (laughs) my wife has, my wife and my son have made me the best entrepreneur that I never thought that I could be. Right. She is great when it comes to, you know, that kind of stuff. And I was just like, well, why don't we just buy it? We'll figure it out later. She's like, well, we got to run the numbers and like all this stuff. So she's made me a great, but that's the importance of having a great partner and having common goals that you both want to reach. Like Ashley said at a, at a certain time frame or whatever the case may be, because just saying, oh, well, I want cash flow, that can mean so many different things for so many different people. And unless you have those open, clear cut conversations with your partner, you have the potential to fail. And that's not what you want to do. You want to be open and clear from the beginning with your partner and say, hey, you know, this is what we want to do. What do you think? And if your goals align, then yeah, move forward. But, you know, I would be hesitant to get into a partnership with somebody who doesn't share the same common goals that I would have regarding real estate. I think. That's very, very important. That's exactly what we did. We have the skill sets that kind of help each other, complement each other, but we also have the same goals. But I'd even take it a step further than that is having the right goals and matched goals is important, but having the ability to actually follow a path to get to those goals, I think is even more important. And I don't think a lot of people talk about that. And what I mean by that is if you have the goal of long-term just cash flow, and you're going to just going to continue investing money and you're not going to take anything out of the business. So for us, we haven't taken a dollar out of the rentals. It just stays in the business account basically. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have that goal matched, but now you need to see, does my partner actually have the means to be able to do this strategy that we want to do long-term? And it's not to judge people or anything like that, but if you're, if you're trying to buy properties with somebody that makes you know maybe $25,000 a year. Maybe they need that cash flow to supplement their career. But if there's somebody that's high earning, they're doing well in their career, things like that, then maybe you can assume that they're going to be better off and leave that cash flow in there and, and be able to actually go towards that goal. And so it's not necessarily to judge them or anything that's like that. It's just to make sure that your personal finances are in order so that your partner doesn't have to sell out early on the deal because they need the money for their own personal finances or their mind changes because of something they're doing in their personal life because that does impact you as their partner. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I always stress that you should, as a real estate investor, you need to focus on your your personal finances yourself, but look at who you are partnering with. And if you want to partner with someone show them your financials, show them your tax returns, your personal financial statement, your bank account, show them that you have your own finances secure and stable that. And that doesn't mean you have to have a ton of money. It just means you manage what money you have. So I I think that's a a really great point. But I want to move on to our next session. So this is the part of the show where we learn about a key player on your team. It can be an agent, a lender, a handyman, someone who has been your MVP. So uh, Felipe, want to do your chant? (laughs) Okay. So this is really important, Robert. You ready? Who is your MVP? 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 Who would you say the person is that most positively affected you guys' out-of-state investing goal? Definitely the agent that we have in that that local city. He's, you know, people talk about building a team. And that sounds daunting. It's like, oh, I got to align all of these different people. But really, if you get a really good agent when you're investing long distance, they can be, like you said, your MVP and they can do a lot for you. So for us, he gave us the lender, he gave us the handyman, he gave us either an electrical contractor, anything we need, somebody to mow the lawn. You know, He's given us everybody that we need. So we didn't need to build those relationships. We just call him and say, hey, who do you know that can do X, Y, and Z? And he helped us through all of that. And of course, everything he did to help us get into the property, he's just really been vital in our success. Okay, Robert. So great. You found a great realtor. Awesome. Everyone's going to want to know, how did Robert do it though? So how did you find this realtor? And how do I find one out of state? So I looked on Zillow and I looked at that local area and I looked at the top 30 agents or so. And I just called every single one of them. I just conducted quote unquote interviews and I just talked through them. And you can be as structured or as not structured as you want, but I had a set of questions that I wanted answers to. And then the rest of it was just kind of feel, you know, how did this person talk with me? How did I feel when I talked to them? How did they understand the language? Could they hold a real estate conversation? Did they seem passionate about real estate or did they just do it because they think they can make a couple bucks that way? So because the way they talk to you is the way they're going to talk to your contractors, your your the people that are going to move into your property. People need to know that. The way they treat you is the exact same reason they're going to treat other people. 
and how often they're going to be willing to help you. I mean, if you talk to someone exactly. that's not passionate, they're not going to answer the phone at Friday night on Friday night at seven o'clock if you need a, a contractor or a handyman, you know. But if they're passionate about real estate, they're going to get it, and you're going to call them, and they'll be there for you. Yeah, that's really great. And plus, they'll want your continued business. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you kind of talked about all the things your realtor has done for you, but can you name one thing that was really great and really stood out to you that would make you want to use them again? The biggest thing is the videos. And so he went Mm -hmm. through six, seven, eight properties. I forget exactly, but he was going through a lot of properties for us, taking videos the whole time. So he FaceTimed us and recorded videos so that we'd have it afterwards. So walking through the whole property, like I said, it was as if I was there. I didn't. I don't know any like too too much about the handy side of things. So that level of detail is good enough for me. I'm gonna bring in an inspector to really give me a professional opinion anyway. So the fact that he was able to go to seven, eight, nine properties, walk through FaceTime, video, do all of that for me, super helpful. And and he did, you know he drove around the neighborhood, took videos like that, and we didn't pay him any extra for this. This was all part of his commission. So the fact that he's willing to do that was was huge for us. And how, speaking of commission, how is he compensated now that the deal is done? Does, does he still help you with stuff or how does that work? No, not really. So we, we paid him his normal commission, 2 or 3% when we purchased the property, which was paid by the seller anyway. But when he, he helps us get the tenant in, so for his troubles of you know doing the move-in checklist, the move-out checklist, do, handling the keys, things like that, we pay him half of the first month's rent. But other than that, he's not really doing anything for us. So, you know, we're just getting him for, or we're just contacting him for relationships, but he's not actually doing any work or anything. So we just call him and say, hey, you know, we need a plumber. Who do you know? And he'll, he'll tell us, but we don't, we don't pay anything for that. Awesome. Yeah, great. Well, that is today's MVP. And we'll put some more information in the show notes um, at biggerpockets.com forward slash rookie 14. So Felipe, you want to take us to the next yes. section? Yes, let's do the next segment. And this is probably one of my favorites. It's called the Rookie Request Line. We have a few more questions. So basically, the Rookie Request Line is where you can call in at one 5 rookie and you can leave a voicemail, and we'll read it on the show. Hi, my name is Jorge. I'm from San Francisco. My question is, how do you legally organize your properties? I read in the book that you should put each individual investment property in a single LLC, whereas I feel that is a lot of work. It seems to provide a lot of legal protection. Thank you for your time. So when I first started real estate, I said, I'll never own a property outside of an LLC. That was the only way I would ever do it. And then as I got more educated, I talked to... I have a podcast, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but I talked to a lot of people about this on the podcast, and then I just got more educated on it. And I realized that well, there's a lot of different things you can do to get yourself protected. And so we bought that property. We were going to transfer it to an LLC afterwards because it's very hard to get financing for an LLC, especially on this type of property and what we were doing. So we were going to quick claim it to an LLC. But then we quickly learned that we'd have to pay taxes in the local area there and where we live, uh, business or formation costs basically. So another almost $1,000 to form the LLC locally there in Texas. And then it's really cheap up here in New Hampshire. It's only about $100. So it just didn't really make sense for us to do that. So we decided to just keep it in our regular name. So I would probably recommend until you start scaling or you're going to have financing terms where you can do an LLC. So if you're doing five units or more, I would recommend probably just doing an LLC. But if you're doing less than that, I think it's fine to keep it in your personal name. Just make sure that you have the insurance policies, you know, everything, all the paperwork, everything in order so that you're covered. Yeah, that's really important is the insurance policy. Get an umbrella policy covering you and your partner on that property, especially if you're not going to have the LLC. So that's a, a great tip. And make sure you have, you know, still have an operating agreement together for that partnership, you know, stating who's responsible for what now if something happens and later on. And I also like to recommend life insurance. Do you guys have life insurance policies? <laughs> Please say no. Ashley, no, this is funny that. because I was waiting for it because <laughs> Ashley goes a step further and she's like, not to be morbid, but she's like, if my partner dies, I want to buy out whoever was going to get the other half of this part. Ashley, tell them, but you get like a life insurance on top of all your insurances on your business partners. Yeah. So, well, I'm also, I became a licensed insurance agent, so I have to make commission off myself, but (laughs) I get in a life insurance policy on my partner. They get one on me. So if one of us were to pass away, 
then the proceeds from that life insurance policy would be used to buy his family out. So instead of me becoming partners with his family automatically, I would um, retain 100% ownership and then his family would receive a, a lump sum payment for the ownership in that. And there is like a calculation in our operating agreement that we actually, we have a buy-sell agreement too. So if one of us wanted out of the property, what would happen? Or if we decide to sell it, and then it also states the term of one of our debts. And there is like a calculation to, you know, value, put a value on the property and how much should actually be paid out to. I don't know it off the top of my head. I think it's actually different for each of my partnerships, but. Yeah, so I don't, I I don't do that. Yeah, I don't do that yet. Um, And it's funny, Ashley, we recorded a podcast together just the other day and you had told me about that life insurance strategy. And ever since then, I've been I've been thinking about it. And I think it is a really good idea. Yeah, I mean, it's and you're you can have your like your company if you but you guys if someone does have an LLC, you can have the LLC actually be the that they'd be the beneficiary, I believe. And they then you can actually write the the premium payments out of it. Yeah. So for for us, I think as we scale, we might start to look at something like that, but we just have uh, three units altogether. So it just seems like it would be a little bit much for us. And it, this is probably totally not the optimal way to do it, but like I know his wife really well. So I feel like if yeah. God forbid something did happen to him, you know, her and I would be able to work something out. And I mean, business is business, money is money. And if something happened, I don't know what she would necessarily, you know, be like right, in that situation. Right. You never know really, but so it's a, it's a probably a little naive on my part, but in general, our portfolio is still relatively small. So I think I just haven't we haven't gone through that process yet. I like to say whatever makes you sleep at night is what is what matters. And I'm able to sleep well at <laughs> so, night right yeah, now. So right, exactly, yeah. So the next thing we have is just a, a bunch of random questions that Felipe and I stay awake at night thinking about what to ask. So uh, Felipe, go ahead. You can take the first one. Sure. Robert, I'm wondering, what were you like in high school? What what clique were you a part of? You said you're an introvert, but based you have two podcasts. You have, I mean, you're doing this one. I mean, it sounds like you're pretty outgoing. So what were you like in high school then? So my earlier days were a little bit different than they are today. So basically growing up, I had no intentions of going to college, nothing like that. I was a motocross racer and I was on path to become a professional motocross racer. Uh, so I missed a lot of school uh, when I was younger, not so much in high school because I stopped my freshman year. But I've, I always just kind of hung out with, with athletes, but I also hung out with you know, more businessy type people as well, or, or you know, quote unquote nerds because I'm a, I'm a huge nerd. You know? But when I was racing, I had no intentions of going to school. But once I stopped racing... I said, well, I got to do something now. And so I got really, really into investing and studying Warren Buffett, things like that. And I became a huge nerd. I had never read any books before that. And then after that, you know, I've started to read a ton, you know, built a huge personal library myself. So started to hang out with a lot of uh, the, the nerdy group and also, but I played sports in high school as well. I played baseball, basketball. So I was also hanging out with those folks as well. Can you give us a little insight to your morning routine if you have one? Yeah, well, we're recording this during COVID-19. So my morning routine is thrown off a little bit. But during yeah. the normal course of, of life, usually I'm up around 4.30, 5 o'clock. I'm at the gym by 5.30, out of the gym around 6.37, at the office by 7, 7.15. And I work my corporate job till about 5. And then go home, hang out with my family for a few hours, usually till about 7.30 or 8. And then they all go to bed. And then I hop back on my computer, do more work, do podcast work, do you know all the different side hustles I got going on. Call do 35 real- realtors. Call realtors. <laughs> well, well, thankful is, is I'm able to do that during my, my corporate job too. You know, I'm doing Excel work. Yeah. So I'm able to call them and, and have oh, that conversation. So that works really well for me. That's awesome. So I got a question for you a little bit off the, off the list here that we have. Robert, if you could have a drink with anybody, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Warren Buffett. Because <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. That's a great that answer. was easy. <laughs> because I mean, I've studied him. He's been he's been my idol for ten years, and I, yeah, I think it would be I think it'd be him. Okay, well, the last question we have is a little bit of rookie hazing. Felipe will help you out with this though. But what song is your guilty pleasure, and can you sing a little bit of it for us? I can tell you my guilty pleasure. I don't necessarily remember all of the lyrics, uh, but it is Avril Lavigne's "Skater Boy." <laughs> all right, go for it. Skater boy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know the words. <laughs> That's all 
I know. Yeah, me too. That's all I know too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Well, I'm sorry I took it away from you. No, Evan, that's okay. You, like you do it much better only, than me. <laughs> well, that's like one of the only songs I've known that people have said. Most of the times I have no idea. A lot of times we'll ask people ahead of time and Felipe and I have to like look it up on YouTube and like try to figure out some of the lyrics so we can sing along. Yeah, yeah. It's my guilty pleasure song because people have always doubted me and like they did in the song. And then yeah. ultimately he becomes successful and that's kind of why it's my guilty pleasure song. I hear you, Robert. That's awesome. Well, man, just kind of to close it all up, man, where can people find out more about you? Tell us about your podcast. You know, where, where can people reach out to you if they have questions? The best place to reach me is on Instagram. That's where I'm the most active or in our Facebook group. But if you want to listen to more of my content, I just recorded recently interviews with you, Felipe, and also you, Ashley. They should be coming out around the time of this interview as well. So you can come listen to those. I have two podcasts. One is called Millennial Investing. So on that show, we talk it's generally geared towards people that are about 22 to 35 or 40 years old. And it's mostly about stock investing and personal finance and side hustles. And then I also have a second show that's just called Real Estate Investing. And on that show, we talk about all different types of, of real estate investing for relatively newbies to medium of the road type, type investors. So really, you have to have nothing going on if you want to find the time to be an out-of-state investor. <laughs> Man, you have a lot going on. That's awesome, though. But um, can you give your the name of your uh, Facebook group and the name of your Instagram handle? Yeah. So my Instagram handle is just the Robert Leonard, and that's Robert L E O N A R D. And the Facebook group is the Investors Podcast Community. Thank you, and thank you so much for coming on with us today. I think this was great. I love talking about the partnerships and out of state investing, especially those two. But I am Ashley from at Wealth from Rentals on Instagram. And he's Felipe at Felipe Mejia, R-E-I. And don't forget to join our Facebook group. We're almost to 7,000. So search um, Real Estate Rookie on Facebook. And if you guys like Robert, ask him some questions in there when this uh, airs. And he'll be more than happy to answer them for you. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thanks, Robert. See you later. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals. Enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and boom, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. There's free resources only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.